My guest today is Jay Newman, who is a lawyer, an accomplished investor, and also the author of Under Money. So welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School today. Oh, thank you. It's really, it is excellent to be here. It's great to have you. So I think people are going to get to know you more once this book comes out. But for those who don't know you, describe a little bit of who you are, where you grew up, how you ended up in this situation of writing this book. I'll give the um, the speed read. I grew up in New Jersey, uh, went to uh, public schools throughout, ended up at, uh, at Yale for college, and then went right to law school, which... Uh, in retrospect, was a terrible mistake, but it led me to where I am today. So I can't hate it too much. Um, actually, I loved law school, but uh, then I practiced law for about five years, which um, was a long five years. I, I got very lucky, though, as a lawyer, because I was working on these transactions that involved tax leases and with some people at Lehman Brothers on the other side. I represented a, a major pharmaceutical company, and this was a period in which you could buy and sell tax write-offs. It was a very short period of time that Congress put into place. I think it was the end of 1998, uh, where you could actually transfer tax benefits uh, for, for value. Normally, you can't do that. You have to actually own the asset, but they needed to give the economy a boost. And so Congress put this provision in. You know, One way or another, we ended up working uh, across the table from a guy named Henry Miller. Henry Miller ran uh, ran equipment leasing and other things at Lehman Brothers, became a great friend and uh, recruited me to go to Lehman after that period was over. I remember Henry very fondly, and I tell him this story every time I see him. It may seem small, but after I joined Lehman, and I went to Lehman to do new product development, working for a guy named Ron Gallatin, Henry took me up to the partner's uh, dining room. And the, uh, the partner's dining room at, at what was then... Uh, Lehman became mm-hmm. Shearson Lehman was a pretty elaborate affair. Uh, we sat at this enormous table and uh, we had a fantastic bowl of soup. And uh, Henry said, that was really good. I'll have another. <laughs> and for some reason, that was revelatory yeah. to me. No, seriously. Uh, it was the idea that you could you know, sit down, partner's dining room and at a major Wall Street investment bank and order a second bowl of soup or a third bowl of soup. And you didn't have to have anything else. So that, for me, kind of epitomized what investment banking was, is, should be, that sense of possibility and potential. Henry Miller, you know, later went on to run Miller Buckfire, uh, you know, major restructuring firm uh, and is, you know, still involved in finance today. But for me, he was the guy that got me uh, out of law uh, into banking. Growing up, Jersey, mom and dad, what's it like at home? Is this like a Philip Roth type of upbringing? Is this or your parents? How do you regard Wall Street at that point? How far away are you from it? What are you reading, given the fact no, that so you this, end up being at, at this stage of your life an author? So um, uh, my, my mother had a PhD uh, in education and was a, a teacher and, and then a, an administrator, ran educational programs. My father um, was a small businessman. He had retail stores. Uh, and throughout my youth, I would end up working in the, in the retail stores. And that's uh, my first exposure to business at a, at a very granular level. At home, we were encouraged to read and think. Um, my favorite activity, my favorite activity in, in uh, high school was actually going down to 
the town bookstore and buying paperbacks uh-huh. with my friends. And we would, we read everything and we would swap them to the point where, you know, you, you know, hundreds of paperbacks would end up piling up. This is radically different than TikTok. I mean, it's literally a world that, that I recognize, but no longer exists. Well, it was, it was, it was fantastic because we would, you know, we would walk into town from school, we uh-huh. would buy books, we would read them and we would talk about them. Uh, outside, of, outside of school. Uh, and in fact, it was much more important um, to be doing that outside of school because school was, uh, I mean, the school was supposed to be great. It was okay. My small group of friends was much more interesting and interested in ideas and in, in books than I think even our teachers were. You're reminding me, we had a conversation with a, uh, a guy, uh, he's now a Russian doctor, uh, in the U.S., but he describes growing up in rural Russia, and there was cool. Like to be cool, you had to have read important books, and that was a big. He didn't end up going into literary stuff, but that was like a big motivator. And I remember too that reading and communicating that way with other people that was part of my social circle. Uh, like I remember when we discovered The Hobbit and talking with like, oh my god, it was mind yeah. expanding. Mm-hmm. And, and did you have any notion then, because when we get to your book, there's a lot of international elements there. Was there anything international about you growing up or about the household or about your curiosity at that point? Well, the one thing that was very unusual about uh, my household is that um, my mother had a real travel bug. Interesting. And every, every summer, uh, she would take, I have uh, one brother, Lee, he's two years younger. Uh, she would take us traveling. And my father would typically join us for, you know, a week or two of that, but um, she would, she drove us across the country my, in, in a, uh, an unair conditioned uh, Ford. This would have been in the, uh, obviously in the, in the early 60s. He flew out to meet us. Uh, she drove us to Nicaragua from New Jersey. There you go. Wow. Wow. How old are you when you first get to Nicaragua? Uh, well, I was, I was probably, in fact, I just found my, I took, I, I made a diary and I found I was probably in finished, um, fifth grade, uh-huh. uh, and fourth grade, sorry. Cause the next year we went to, um, Eastern Europe on a freighter. I'll, I'll come to that, but so, <laughs> I'm glad we didn't skip over this. <laughs> you know, I haven't talked about this in such a long time. It's, it's uh, fun to remember. So she dro- we drove with my father down as far as Mexico City. He then flew back. She drove us, uh, you know, a, a single woman and two kids uh, in the backseat of a, a gray Mercedes, the, the one with the, the, little, the little fins on uh, the back, little, you know, square fins. Great car. Great car. Had it, you know, for a long time. She drove us by herself all the way down to um, Managua. In fact, we had to sleep on the border because we got there too late. So the, uh, when we entered Nicaragua, we, we, um, we ended up sleeping at the border in the car. On the way back, she didn't want to drive all the distance. Um, so in Guatemala, we got on a, um, literally a banana boat uh, in Puerto Barrios uh, in Guatemala and took uh, the boat to Miami. My dad then flew down and we drove up to New Jersey uh, together. But this was a time in Guatemalan history where we were stopped uh, repeatedly by kids with guns. Uh, there were guerrillas, there were government forces, and every few miles, uh, we'd get stopped by a different roadblock with no, um, they didn't care about us. But who knew? I think today, 
think about it in today's context, would drive through Mexico, much less through Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, yeah. Costa Rica, fine. Costa Rica is safe. Um, Nicaragua, uh, not so safe. But we wouldn't have, we would not have made it through. We wouldn't have gotten to Mexico City. Yeah. Much less gotten to Managua and Nicaragua. Yeah. The next summer, we, um, uh, my mother put us on a boat, uh, a Yugoslavian uh, freighter, uh, the Primoya, means first in uh, Serbo Croatian. Uh -huh. And uh, we, you know, got off in, uh, uh, in Genoa, picked up a VW bug, uh, and she drove us all the way out to uh, Ankara across Europe and then back. This sounds awesome. It was, it was amazing. So bef before I hit sixth grade, I'd probably been to uh, 20 countries. Uh, and, you know, you don't know. So this is completely separating you from like, there were people who travel. I'm younger than you, but I remember my dad was a scientist. And so he traveled a lot for, you know, different scientific conferences and stuff like that. But kids our age, like we're not going to Managua or Ankara, uh, even though I remember staring at those places on maps. But that was I. Did you have anybody else in your among your friend circle, your peers, who were doing trips like this? No, no, nobody. And Dad was just like Dad was, but also the world was um, safer then. You know, the the uh, my grandfather lived in a Russian-born grandfather. It's a long story, but he lived in rural Mexico the whole time I was growing up, and he drove a Volvo from rural Mexico to our house in the suburbs, basically, to take care of us. And nobody even thought – people thought it was a long drive, but nobody even thought of his safety. No, it wasn't no, even a question. Of, of course, I was going to say two things. Of course, they didn't think about his safety because he was safe. Uh, and, of course, he did that, right? And not only that. You only knew he was coming because he sent you a letter. Yes. Right? Because you didn't. That's right. You know, Phone calls were inconceivable. They, they were inconceivable, impossible if you could make them, which was only years later, actually, that, that international calls halfway, halfway worked. Yes. They were phenomenally expensive. I mean, you were talking about a few bucks a minute, right? You couldn't, yeah. you couldn't afford a conversation. Uh, all you could call and say is, I'm okay. Send me money. American Express. Bye. So what a gift your mom gave you with this experience. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. And did you, when did you start, did you at some point like dawn on you? Maybe you were in college, like, holy, Mac, your mom was a little bit out there. And it's kind of a weird combination of the one hand, like you say PhD in education. I'm not thinking I'm putting my kids on a freighter type of person. So she's a really important person. A, a very, very important person. Um, in my life and in ways that maybe I'm still um, thinking about and trying to measure and assess, right? Because right. how do you, you know, so in terms of my worldview, be, being, even as, as a kid, not thinking anything of it, but being stopped by Guatemalan gorillas. Yes. Right. Meeting in a hotel bar in uh, uh, El Salvador, a, uh, a con man who wanted to sell shares in a local gold mine. Uh, <laughs> And my mother was, uh, she was a researcher. She was writing books about uh, uh, then contemporary um, arts and crafts. She wrote 20 books. Um, my brother and I wrote some books as well, some craft books. I, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll get to that as well. Um, but she, so she was collecting indigenous art and craft uh, throughout this period. So we had a real mission 
on these trips. Uh, so we go to these um, primitive villages looking for local weavers and carvers and, uh, and sculptors, uh, which gave another, right. another, um, another level of uh, interaction uh, to our trip. So we were, were meeting a lot of people all along the way. We weren't just passing through staying in a hotel. Uh, such as they were, the, you know, hotels were, you know, everything was more primitive. It wasn't, there were yeah. no Ritz Carlton's or uh, Bristol's or things like that. You were, you know, you had, you know, a clean bed and we we're also on a budget. You know, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of money to spend. So um, watched, uh, you know, watch what everything cost. But um, my mother was intent on making these trips happen. And how long were these trips typically? Six, eight weeks. Europe, I think, was 12 weeks. So it's basically to heck to heck with mowing lawns for the summer or summer camp. Like, we're hitting the road. I'm an educator, so I have this freedom, but I'm going to use it to the hilt. And your dad was sort of supportive with the whole thing. Yeah, and I think it was, it was um, we were kind of lucky that my mother had this uh, kind of compulsion yes. to travel and see the world. She went to... Um, she went to France in 19, I was born in 1951. And in the summer of 51, I was born in December, in the summer of 51, she took herself to Europe. Single woman, six months pregnant, took herself to Europe uh, by herself uh, and just traveled around. And was, was there a downside to this at all that you, you could see with age and everything is typically two-sided? Yeah, I, I, don't, uh, I don't see... I don't see a particular downside. Uh-huh. Um, maybe I need to think about that some more. Maybe I need a couch to do that. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get a couch. We'll, okay. have, we'll do that for the next one. <laughs> okay, good. Anyway, so, okay. So now that explains a lot. So that not only do you have this upbringing interested in literature, and then clearly you're academically very talented if you're going from Yale to law school. I mean, these are tough jobs with not the law thing. One of the prerequisites seems to be ability to operate on four hours of night of sleep, at least for the initial stage of it. But then you have this unbelievably rich international. Did you travel to Asia too as part of this? Uh, we did travel to Asia. My brother and I were always very, you know, handy with crafts because my uh -huh. mother was an artist and a crafts and interested in craft and wrote all these books about indigenous art and craft. Uh, so she suggested that my brother and I uh, write a book about what we were doing. So we were writing, we wrote a book about, the first book was about using plastic materials. It's, you know, it's still out there, plastics for the craftsmen. Uh -huh. We wrote a, our bestseller was actually um, Kite Craft, a book about making and flying kites. Yep. Um, and it's probably uh, something people do all over the world, right? All over the world. So we, the summer we went to Japan, uh, which was, um, I think the summer before I went to college, um, uh, we visited kite makers and kite face painters. Um, and in addition to my mother's researching uh, Asian textiles. So yeah, we went, we got to Asia as well. Jay, there's a memoir here. Memoir might not be a thing. There's a memoir thing here, but on the road, I'm telling you. And because you'd be describing also your childhood, but also you're describing another part of the world that doesn't exist, you know, the whatever, I don't know whether you ever made it to Afghanistan or Pakistan or those parts of the world, but people used to travel there quite frequently. And now it's, you can't go there. Yeah. My mother actually, my mother, she died quite young. She mm. was 58 and died of lymphoma. And the, mm. the place that it, um, Evidence itself was when she and my brother were in Afghanistan. Oh my goodness! This was—I was—I think I had just finished uh, law school. It was—I uh, was—I was clerking in Philadelphia for a judge, and 
my mother and brother came back early and she was at the doctor and it was, um, uh, so it, you know, she, she lived for, you know, three, four years um, with cancer, but it was, it's also the sort of cancer that today you wouldn't die of. Um, but in 19, right. you know, in the 1970s, you died of it. Yeah. My mother died from one of those cancers too. You have this unbelievably rich thing. What did you like about law? You said there were parts of it got you out of law is what you were saying that you got to leave it. I'm going to go back for a step because you asked about kind of what we knew in, in our house. So I was admitted to uh, Harvard Business School. Mm-hmm. I didn't get into Harvard Law School. And my parents were of a generation uh, that, that, well, you, you know, you should have a, if you're going to go to a grad school, you should have a profession. Mm-hmm. So you should be a doctor or you should be a lawyer. Yeah. This, this idea that you would go to business school, what is business school? Yeah. And I'm still you know, not completely sure. So I share a little bit of their sympathy. <laughs> well, but I think, and, and I remember my, you know, after I was accepted to Harvard Business School, going to, you know, meet them and talk about it. I said, well, I really wanted to do a joint degree, but I didn't get into the law school. And the guy said, well, why don't you start here? And, um, you know, then you can always reapply to law school and it gives you, it'll give you some leverage. And I said, what's leverage? <laughs> I mean, what leverage was, I mean, he meant it as a, you know, a, <clears throat> a business term. Yeah. And, and I understood leverage as, you know, a fiscal term, but, um, but I had no idea what leverage was. And so I didn't do that. I, uh, I went to uh, Columbia for law school uh, and I meant to do a joint degree and then forgot about it. So I got stuck. And I mean, stuck in law. I loved law school. Law school had, I made some great friends, uh, fascinating ideas, wonderful professors. It was really fun. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people don't experience law school that way. I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I went uh, to work. I clerked for a judge. That was fun too. Uh, and because you were actually, you know, doing things that felt kind of real, you were making, uh, you know, helping to write decisions that affected things in the real world. Uh, and, uh, and then I went to work for two different uh, law firms, I switched law firms because I thought it was maybe the law firm I didn't like, but in fact, it turned out it was law. And it was just the, uh, for me, an endless, endless grind. And the fact that you were really, um, at least as an associate lawyer, you had no leverage. I mean, you were, you were really just putting in your time, your hours. That's what really mattered. Um, and, uh, the quality of the work was obviously important, but if you didn't put in the hours, uh, you were nowhere. Um, and the idea was that you would pay your pay those hourly dues for uh, seven, eight, nine, ten years, and then you would find out if you're going to be a partner or not. And then if you became a partner, you'd have the opportunity to do the same thing for the rest of your life. Um, uh. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration.
I grew in, in, in on the street. I grew up in Washington D.C. Most people work for the government, but there were there was a guy opposite me who was a private sector lawyer. I have no idea what type of law, but I watched him in that thing, and I remember being a kid and looking at sort of his lifestyle and what it did to him. And even at that age, me thinking like, this does not seem like a good deal. Like the relative improvement you get in your life, because you know my dad worked for the government, so he certainly made more money than my dad. But I looked at it and I was like, this is going to do bad things to you to live this way. It was my hypothesis for long periods of time. Yeah. It's a tough, it's really tough, tough business. Yes. So you go from there, then you, so then you, you joined uh, Lehman. This is right after the Asian financial crisis, 98. Uh, this was at the, uh, no, Lehman was uh, 80, uh, 83, 1983. Oh, okay. So, so this was, is, I, I misheard you earlier. So this is really the go-go years. There's another crisis though, because it was right after the, uh, the debt, the first debt crisis, the first big debt crisis. The Asian, um, right. And Mexico had just defaulted, Poland, Ecuador, uh, um, Venezuela, everyone was defaulting. Uh, and I didn't at first focus on default, um, which later became an important theme for me and yes. became my yes. career. But um, I focused on new products, new financial products, working for um, Ron Gallatin. But one day, uh, this guy named Jeff Garten, uh, Jeff Garten, um, uh, Fantastic banker, um, famously married to Ina Garten, uh, the the barefoot Contessa. Uh, but that's not my relationship with him. Mine was that Jeff showed up one day, and he was he was then running the um, financial advisory practice uh, that Lehman and uh, and Lazard and Warburgs had uh, jointly as a firm. They had a, a practice that had advised countries on debt restructuring and and financing. Just post record, just to make sure a regular listener understands this, meaning that if Mexico has defaulted on debt, they would then, or we're running into problems, they would then hire this practice to help them figure out a way out. Right. They would hire this. This is sort of like defaulting on your mortgage, except that it's a country doing it. And you you then hire a financial advisor to help you restructure your finances. The difference, the difference being that with a mortgage, you can actually go bankrupt. Um, a country can't go bankrupt. That's another whole story, which we can get into because the, the famous adage from uh, Walter Riston, countries don't go bankrupt, which is completely accurate and totally useless uh, information, uh, but famously is repeated, you know, to no purpose. Uh, yeah. but, but so Jeff showed up one day and said, you know, there are all these, these rippling defaults uh, out there in the world. And all these banks have massive, massive loan portfolios. Uh, it was also kind of, it was a, it was a double whammy at the time, because at the same time, countries were defaulting. And by the way, the Fed refused, I'll get to this in a second, but the Fed refused to let banks, talk about Fed intervention, now think, recalling this, refused to let banks uh, declare defaults because their portfolios would have been so compromised because at the same time, there was a real estate crisis, uh, particularly in, in the South, uh, in Texas, and banks were up to their eyeballs in real estate loans and in third world debt. And the combination would have totally cratered the banking system. So, so let, me, let me just pause again to make sure I'm getting all the details right and also explain to the, the audience there. So. The reason the governments, these this third world governments can't pay back the debt 
and this is critical, is because people are like, well, the U.S. is creating lots of debt. They are creating debt in a currency they can't print. In other words, in the pandemic, they're borrowing in dollars, and the, the U.S. central bank controls the printing of dollars, not the Mexican central bank, which means that if you can't get the dollars, you're crushed. In the United States, in the pandemic right now, they can print as many dollars as they want. It creates different problems, doesn't create that problem. And then what you're saying about the banks, the key thing, the sort of bank 101, just to simplify it, is you give a bank a dollar, they lend out 90 cents, meaning they only have 10 cents of capital. So if the value of the loans falls by more than 10 cents, meaning they decline in value more than 10%, you got a big problem with your banking sector. That's what you're describing happening to the banks. So they lend out this money to the to Mexico, and then you're also saying real estate. The value of those loans declines by more than 10%. Now you got a big banking crisis problem. A big banking crisis problem. And the, and the consequences of this ripple through today as well. The, the reason the banks are willing to make those loans was because the, the U.S. and the U.K. passed two statutes, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and the State Immunities Act, which enabled countries to waive immunity to suit in the U.S., in New York, or in London. And it was on the basis that you could have jurisdiction, a waiver of, immu of sovereign immunity, which heretofore had been absolute. Uh, so to waive that, to make a conditional immunity and enable the, the, your, your lender to sue you in New York or in London. The difficulty being that, uh, and I, I proved this in many cases over the years, that you can enforce sovereign claims at the margin, but you couldn't really enforce them uh, as a totality. So what happened was the banks uh, ended up... Meaning, just as slowly, in plain English, what I, what I see you saying is that if, it's, I don't want to pick up Mexico too much, but if Mexico is not paying their debt back and you lent them the money and they're not, you lent them a hundred bucks, they're not paying you back the hundred bucks, you have the ability to sue them under New York, under US law. You don't have to go to Mexico to do it. That's what allowed this whole thing to happen. Exactly. And, uh, and the it was you know people variously say it was the you know the banks were awash in petrodollars and that that they wanted to recycle that money they needed a place to lend the money it's that's kind of BS because you don't you should never make loans that don't make any sense right <laughs> um, but that was the story but the but the real the point I was getting to here is that the Federal Reserve uh, insisted that the banks uh, follow a an, ex, an extend and pretend approach. So the banks started off by lending new money so that the countries could repay them the principal and interest that right. they couldn't afford to pay. That went on for a number of years, the new money loans, which were completely bogus. Uh, and the reason I, I know um, I was actually a, a small part of that process because at, <clears throat> I'll step back for one sec. Uh -huh. So after Jeff Garten came to our new product committee, and he said, you should look at this. Um, I was assigned to look at the possibility of starting a trading desk in third world bank loans. Interesting. And I did a business plan and I wrote it up and presented it to the committee. And the committee said, seems like a cool business for us. No one else is doing it. Actually, at about the same time, Bear Stern started doing it. And we were kind of, we always debated who was first. Was it Bear? Was it Lehman? Who cares? Um, we were early to the game. And uh, at the time, uh, the, the committee said, yeah, let's do that business. They looked around and said, well, who's, who's going to run this business? <laughs> and nobody raised their hand. 
because everybody already had a business and this wasn't a business. And my, going back to 1983, junk bonds were in their infancy. Right. So even that wasn't a business. It was kind of a weird little thing that a couple of people did in a corner. Uh, Mike Milliken was just getting going and he dominated whatever was being done. Uh, so when the, the call went out for someone to start this business, I raised my hand and said, well, if no one wants to do it, I'll do it. And they said, well, what do you know about business? You know, you're a lawyer. <laughs> I said, well, not, not an unreasonable objection. I, <laughs> no, totally, totally, totally reasonable. Uh, and it was, you know, it, it was, and, you know, in, in this day and age, um, you would never hire a guy who just, you know, been a lawyer, you know, 18 months prior to start a brand new business. But this was, you know, wild times. Nobody wanted to do it. It was, you know, an easy thing to say, okay, you get a, a chance to run with this. And, you know, I, I basically was involved in the third world debt business um, from then on uh, throughout uh, the rest of my career, which um, I'm still involved in collecting third world debt. Um, it just, you know, in a different form. And when, when did you, at a certain point, you jumped to Elliot, which you and I share in common, each working for people that are more famous than we are. I was at Lehman for about six years. Um, then, uh, you know, through a couple of iterations, ended up at um, Morgan Stanley. Uh, and I was reading uh, an article one day about a lawyer who had uh, decided that he was, um, was going to collect a debt against the Republic of Paraguay. And I thought, this is a revelation. So because even, <laughs> even though, do you know the story about trading sardines? No. So the trading, so, so in, in Germany, uh, after World War I, uh, during the Great Inflation, uh, people, This is the 1923 German Weimar hyperinflation. People, exactly. And people were, um, they didn't want, they didn't want uh, money. They didn't want paper money. What they wanted were, they wanted a can of sardines or a pair of classic. shoes. This is something, by the way, you, you see, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but if you look at currency crises over the world, it's when the, this gets again to, do you owe money in currency you can print or you can't print? So in Weimar, Germany, it's money they can print. They have a lot of reasons, but they have debts related to the loss of First World War and reparations. So they're printing this thing like crazy. One of the things you see is people will grasp for, you can actually look at television footage like that. They want anything that has some resale value. Like you'll see people go out and buy like five TVs because they're like, well, TVs will hold on to something. So that, sorry for interrupting, it's the, the sardines. A store of value. And yes. uh, so the, the, uh, the famous apocryphal story about um, that living in, a, living in an inflation is the guy that traded a pair of sardines, uh, a can of sardines for a pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. And a week later, he went back to the guy that gave him the sardines and he said, these sardines are rancid. And the, the guy with the shoe said, why did you, why did you open the can? And I said, I was hungry. I wanted to eat. Um, I was starving. And then I opened them and I couldn't eat them. And the guy looked at him and said, are you crazy? Those were trading sardines. Those were not eating sardines. So for, you know, for the, the, you know, the, the bulk of almost 10 years after the, the uh, third world debt crisis started in the, in the late 70s, 
bank loans were trading sardines. Right. And we no. were basically broke. Nobody actually so thought it was like a financial instrument that you repaid at some point. No, no, they didn't. They didn't think about it that way. And and that was an insight that that I had that it was not uh, prevalent. But the but for a long time we were basically brokering uh, transactions with banks. So three Chile for two Brazil plus a Mexico, put a little cash in <laughs> because the banks. Exactly, it was totally ridiculous. It was all the same crap, and people should have just stuck with what they had and just you know. But they didn't. They thought they, you know, having made the loans in the first place and screwed up, they decided they were going to rebalance their portfolios and they had the opportunity to do nothing uh, productive yet again. But and, and I can say as a shop that traded this stuff for some time, that basically people go through these very intricate calculations. And they say, well, Argentina hasn't paid their money, but they export agricultural stuff. If you look at there's a drought somewhere, so the price of the wheat they export is going to skyrocket, which is going to give them more cash. Therefore, these it's like there's a whole micro industry of this. Yeah. Um, so, and that's exactly what was happening. So we, we were um, at Lehman and then at, uh, at Morgan Stanley, we, we facilitated that, started deploying capital uh, at, um, at Morgan Stanley. We set up the first um, fund through which uh, investors could actually invest in these bank loans. Um, but then I was reading, as I started to mention, I was reading um, an article about this guy that had actually collected on Paraguayan debt. And I, uh, at the he was time, attempting went, to read been successful. No, he's successful. He, he actually it was an article about how he levied against assets of the, of the central bank of Paraguay that were sitting at a bank in New York. And I, so I pulled out and this is, you know, to my shame and later, uh, less shameful. Um, I actually read the bond contracts, uh, by the way, this, this for the audience is something, um, to know, um, the bond contract for U.S. Treasuries. How long do you think that contract is? Oh, I'll, I'll tell you. It doesn't exist. <laughs> There's no contract. It's book entry, and it's you are just depending on the you know the um, uh, the U.S. government paying what it owes. And but the the loan contracts for third world debt ran and run to hundreds, if not thousands of pages, just, and there, and those, most of those pages are totally meaningless, totally meaningless. So it's a longer, it's a longer, more arcane story of why they're meaningless and how they're meaningless and, you know, kind of um, uh, uh, collective action issues. But uh, suffice it to say that um, it was a revelation to me in finally reading the contract that there were some contracts that were pretty good. And then I started looking around, and I found that search and found that there were a dozen, uh, a dozen instances in which creditors had actually enforced sovereign claims successfully. They were small, uh, they were idiosyncratic, but you know it was possible. So I went to um, I went to my then boss, John Mack, and I said, John, I've got a great new business for us. We're going to buy these bank loans, and we're going to insist on being paid in full instead of settling for 20, 30, 40 cents in the dollar, which at that point was what the, the banks were doing, restructuring the debt. Yeah. And John said, wow, uh, Jay, so interesting. So what you're telling me is that Morgan Stanley is going to sue Mexico. I said, and get, and get paid. And I said, yeah, John, exactly. And he said, exactly not. 
Morgan Stanley is never going to sue a country. So at that point, I thought, well, what was his reasoning? Because, you know, you know, blue blood, major U.S. bank. And, and he was right, by the way, he was right for uh, for Morgan Stanley, for you, you name the firm, um, even to this day. Um, to the extent that sovereign debt is enforced and collected upon, it's not done by uh, by major banks or investment banks. It's is done it because of a reputational risk, because it's seen unseemly. Like, what's what's the argument? I mean, uh, conceptually, they're motivated by expected value. Uh, reputational risk, unseemly, and the idea that I think these are regulated institutions, and these are these are political. Um, you know the. Becoming adverse to a sovereign itself is a very political position to be in. Within Latin America, Paraguay, you know, if you exclude the islands, places like Haiti, but Paraguay is the poorest country there. And presumably this person you're reading about is enforcing a contract, the optics of it. Okay, here are a bunch of very sophisticated guys in New York forcing poor little Paraguay to pay. Is that maybe what John Mack was thinking about? I don't think he was even thinking in, um, in those terms. Exactly. Uh, it just was not a, uh, you know, a major U.S. investment bank uh, was not going to go head to head with a, a poor country. Okay. Right. And I think that was, I think that was and is the right decision for, uh, for most uh, institutions. I think that, you know, enforcing sovereign claims is still a, uh, a cottage industry. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, um, it's, it's a very tough business. Uh, takes a long time, takes a lot of money. Takes uh, years, and, right? Uh, in some cases. It, 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 it can't, yes, it can take years. You know, I thought this, this still is an interesting business and I decided that I would uh, uh, try to do it myself. Mm -hmm. So through a number of iterations, I, you know, I, I had a, a couple of uh, starts and false starts uh, and, uh, and then finally ended up meeting uh, uh, Paul Singer at uh, at Elliot, and uh, the rest uh, is really history. Mm -hmm. I was at Elliot for over twenty years, and uh, during that period, um, this is this is all public information. Mm -hmm. I was uh, I was involved in yeah, in uh, investing in and enforcing sovereign claims. And that was your that was your particular role at the firm. And for listeners who don't know, Elliot is one of the most successful hedge funds. And I would say, you know, it, but way better than I ever uh, could, but I would say the, the nature of the investment is, from what I can understand, very, very well considered transactions. It's not the extreme opposite. There's a phrase on Wall Street, have a hunch, buy a bunch, which is sort of have some view of the world and you execute it. Maybe a little bit like what Soros is known for. This is the exact opposite of that. So what, what was interesting about working at a hedge fund, uh, and I think it, what is interested, interesting in working at uh, a hedge fund, is that it gives, it gives you the opportunity, in my case, continued opportunity to travel the world, to meet people, and to, to see things, and to try to figure out how things work, and how people work, and how people think. And I got to do that for most of my business career, and, uh, and certainly you know, my, you know, through my youth, uh, starting uh, traveling with my family when I was you know, six or seven years old. It's a very unique perspective, I think, and tell me whether you agree with this, which is that 
a lot of people are traveling the world. If they travel the world, it's more as a tourist or something, or you're seeing what I describe as seeing things from the outside. When you're doing this type of work, it's very different in that you go to a place and you're meeting with central bankers and finance ministers and the people who run major businesses there. And it gives you a very particular perspective. And the other strange thing is what I found about money was <laughs> there's a few things that people care about all over the world. And one of them is money. <laughs> you could have very different religious beliefs, very different political beliefs, but everybody's interested in money and explaining how it works, what's the good side of the deal, what's the bad side of the deal. It was a universal language to me. Yep. And if you were if you were dealing in money and in how to make or not lose money, everybody was accessible to you. Yes. You know, as an investor. That's what you wanted. You wanted to, you know, talk to people high and low in government, out of government, yes. you know, everywhere. Uh, and this was the, the real privilege. Having a business card from a major hedge fund allowed you to accomplish. Yes. And for me, you know, thinking thinking now to my recent history as a you know as a writer, so the, the hedge fund people that we meet are really kind of a snooze. Yeah. They're the good ones are. Very, very well run. They're honest to a fault. But part of what you're doing is to try to figure out who's trying to part you improperly from your money yes. and which transactions work and why. Because there's always some guy out there who some scam artist or crook. And we've, you know, we, you know, we, the big ones are obvious like Joe Lowe and for one MDB and, you know, Alan Stanford and Bernie Madoff. And, right. you know, you've, we all got our list of, of scam artists and crooks. Uh, and all of those guys are great geniuses until it turns out they're not. And, and by the way, those scams are happening as we speak. We don't know what the next scam is going to be. You know, we can, you know, we can, we can speculate, right. You know, this thing just pop into my head and I'll just uh, spit it out and then I move on to talk about, you know, the influence that the travel and meeting people did on, had on my uh, novelistic uh, pretensions. But I'm thinking about uh, just today, the other day I was reading this, this expose in the Wall Street Journal about 131 federal judges. Did you read this? No. 131 federal judges were uh, trading in equities of companies that had litigation in front of them. <gasps> yeah. Unbelievable. 131. Unbelievable. And then they, you know, most, many of them sort of apologize. But nobody's forced to quit. I would have been fired in a nanosecond. Well, not just fired, yeah. but it's actually criminal. Yeah. Well, I wasn't a judge. I'm saying, but if we had, we had our compliance rules, if you, you fired in a nanosecond. The, the language uh, in the, the statute refers to any equity interest, however small. Yeah. And, you know, so it's, it's I'm going to, I'm going to flip back to this in a, in a second, but the, the, what was interesting and your point about money is just so incredibly pertinent because it's, it's not just the, what I call the over money, which is the apparent flows, the published figures, right. it's how do things really work? Yes. Who's really getting paid? Who's getting paid off? Is this person honest? Is this person corrupt? How do things really fit together in this country? Because you're charged with figuring out whether you've got a good investment or a bad investment, a good partner or a bad partner, you really have to develop a robust way to figure this out, but hmm. also a, a sixth sense 
about what's legitimate and what's not legitimate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that always, you know, as an investor in um, uh, for, you know, for over 40 years in developing countries, that's what I tried to develop. What I was doing, this is tons of travel. There's hours and hours on airplane. And there's a lot of, well, I, this would make a great novel. Like I had to put this in a book, but almost nobody does it. And now you've done it. And so you had this notion of writing, sort of explaining what your life lessons were. We'll talk a little about the things I didn't learn at school. And then you said, well, wait a minute, this actually would make a better novel than it would some memoir. Exactly. So I, I started thinking about, because um, I'd, I'd always enjoyed writing. And I over the years, I wrote a number of op-eds, um, mostly explaining uh, what we were doing and why we're doing it and for the, you know, for the FT or for the Wall Street Journal or for the New York Observer. Uh, so I always had I really enjoyed writing, yeah. Uh, and I thought about writing about my business career, but what I realized was that the audience for uh, for a book about some hedge fund guy's career was likely to be very small, <laughs> and it was likely to be a real snooze. I mean, you know, there are occasional you know fun anecdotes, yep. but. Um, Few and far between, particularly if you're honest, right? I mean, <laughs> people like the type of stuff people drags people to story is, you know, sex, violence, intrigue, instability, all that type of stuff. Though, but we're going to get into the reasons why those types of stories are so attractive. But anyways, and that's different than the day to day. So I hear you. So I started thinking that maybe fiction was the best way to mobilize things that I had seen and thought about and. And I was also, uh, and I was influenced in particular and inspired by a great friend of mine whose name is Don, like the lead character in in um, in Under Money. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was inspired by Don, who, uh, when I met him at, at Morgan Stanley, had he's, he had recently retired as a captain in the army. He came to the street uh, to make some money, but he really he didn't like it. He didn't like Wall Street. Didn't like the whole scene, and he he loved the he loved the army. And he was an intelligence guy, a special ops guy. And after a few years, he went back into the army. He just recently retired from cyber command as a, you know, as a full bird colonel. Wow. But he would always tell me where he was going, not exactly what he was doing because he couldn't. Uh, but I had a, my own imagination, a sense for what right. he was doing and how he was doing it. So I started thinking about uh, Don, who... Uh, was and is a real patriot, doesn't like the way the country's being run. And the idea came to me, what if this Don is part of a small group of of people, military people, uh, who decide that maybe they can get one of their one of their team elected to um, uh, to the Senate, perhaps even even further, maybe the presidency, and maybe they can really change things mm-hmm. because they they hate everything about the way the country is being run. Right. They hate particularly how the military is being run, uh, which is which I think is true of a lot of uh, active service people. Mm-hmm. And I'm 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 thinking about the the recent uh, expose in the Washington Post called the Afghanistan Papers, which described how the military lied, lied knew and lied for 18 years about our prospects for prospects for success in Afghanistan, and just kept pretending that it could that we could be successful to the tune of thousands of of american uh soldiers killed and a trillion dollars and putting putting aside the the carnage in afghanistan uh and the, the carnage on the afghani people and how many afghanis died it just just 
gruesome, a gruesome experience. So, but the context of that is that, you know, America is abysmal at foreign policy and has been for 70 years. Mm -hmm. And there is, you know, there's not a, not a war, quote unquote, that we fought in that period that I think uh, you can't argue should not have been waged, at least not waged the way that it was waged. So, which, by the way, is the grievance of a lot of. I mean, we're flipping back and forth between imaginary and fiction from real world and fiction. But that's the for somebody who spent a lot of time in their career, Russia and China. That's one of their huge grievances, and it's an appropriate grievance uh, that you know we we meddle, we jump in, we as a country we jump in, we jump out. Uh, we, <clears throat> without really any thought to consequences or long, long-term objectives. Uh, and this is what my characters hate. And yeah. this is what they want to change. In, in, sort of, in sort of financial terms, one of the things you talked about in the book, this is Under Money that's coming out uh, soon, that I encourage you all to, uh, to, to it'll actually, we're, it'll, it'll be available by the time this podcast is aired. The, uh, there is a little bit of a campaign speech by Ben Corn, your alter ego, alter ego <laughs> to 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 be on the, which is quite impassioned and touching in a way. For it's it's almost heroic in the sense that it is very aware. It has a very cynical, mature eye to all the way the systems and large organizations are broken, but still holding on to a set of ideals. Paul, I'm speechless. I couldn't have said it better. Um, it's it, it's uh, exactly how I, I feel about it. And um, uh, but just to step back for a second, the <clears throat> so one thing that they re- these guys realize is that they I, I'm, I'm going to frame kind of how I thought about the, the book in terms of mm-hmm. tone uh, and a friend. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give credit to uh, actually to uh, Larry Bernstein for this, because he said mm-hmm. this this book is a cross between Tom Wolfe, Tom Clancy and business intrigue. <laughs> and that's a good combo. <laughs> it's it's um and as I think about it that's you know I that's aspirational uh-huh. uh, because the social commentary of uh, and I spent a lot of time in the book uh, trying to expose how rich people think. We we could we should talk about that. I do too, want to talk about that. I think because what money the impact of money on the brain I think is a very important theme. Uh, yes. it's, certainly I think it's important in the in the book and in society today but just to frame for you know for the listener uh what you know what's going on in the in the in the novel uh this this group of people decides that they they have an opportunity to infiltrate a hedge fund uh because they need they need money to get their guy elected and they need a front and they decide that a hedge fund is the perfect front and and you know in in national security the cia the oss Fronts were always very, very important uh, yes. historically. To this and day, to to this day, and for all we know, hedge fund. There is a hedge fund out there that is a front, uh, maybe much like uh, you know uh, my fictional industrial strategies. Uh, but they fall they fall into uh, a way to infiltrate, and then they find out that uh, industrial strategies is rotten to the core, right? Which makes it, in a funny way, even more attractive to them, right? Because they can expose the weak spots as they would be trained to do. Right, and they can, and they find a way to, let's just say, um, make use of make use of it without giving away too much of the plot and the story. But right. the intrigue and the the there there's a very I think what's unusual if I can sing sing my song here. Um, what's unusual about uh, Under Money 
Uh, oh, I want to mention that where under money came from and what it what it means. Uh, it has a very heavy business emphasis. So there's lots of business stuff happening, and I think it's described in a way that is uh, uh, unusual for fiction in that. It's written by somebody who actually lived it, right. and I think it rings true. But I think most, because I think most fiction is um, doesn't doesn't really have uh, isn't really driven that way. Um, under money, just just you know, because and may I claim here, please, that um, I will have introduced this word into the English language. Yes. Okay, I'm going to claim that. <laughs> but where it came from is. My one of my one of my sons lived in Japan, and he became friendly with a um, a Japanese restaurateur, uh, Asawa Sano, and uh, uh, Sano even today runs a a terrific uh, uh, robotaya a grill restaurant in uh, in Rapungi. Asano came to New York. We took him out to eat at a place in the East Village and Japanese place. He was about to open his own restaurant in New York, uh, a uh, affiliated with his Japanese uh, mothership. I asked him, said, you know, Isano, um, is there any difference between opening a restaurant in New York and in Tokyo? Uh, and he looked at me and he smiled and he rubbed his uh, thumb against his index finger in the universal sign of money. And then he reached under the table and he said, no, under money. And so the, the two things that really um, captured me in terms of conceiving under money were, were this idea that there is over money. There is the money that we all see on, on balance sheets. Mm -hmm. It's there, it's not there, but at least it purports to be visible and accounted for. And then there's the under money. It's a group of people who are disaffected with the world and, uh, and see a way to perhaps change it. The story of under money is that there is money that is, that is not visible to the public. Uh, that controls people and events. Mm. And you can think about it as a subterranean river. It's, it flows invisibly under the surface, and it goes through every continent, under the oceans, pops up again, faster, slower, um, sometimes washes away foundations or whole countries, sometimes bubbles to the surface, but there's always this, this current of money that you can't see. And you can apply it to anything. And the reason I thought about the judge story is that the 131 federal judges trading on in stocks that uh, represent interest, that are interest in, in litigants uh, mm -hmm. that are before them is classic undermining. Yeah. You don't, now the judges all claim, of course, that you know, the fact that they had an economic interest in the outcome of a case, however small and indirect, would have no bearing whatsoever on the outcome of the case. So if that's the case, why is it a crime to hold those investments? Right. Just, just asking. So that is, you know, that's just one example of under money. But the, the flow of funds for, you know, for Afghanistan, promoted by the military, to, so that they could, you know, have these budgets that let them, you know, buy, you know, more toys and... Yeah. Or just making their whole central bank function like it, it all of the the giving them the literally the helicopters or however they see 40 transports planes of the dollar bills to make the whole cap that's one thing in all the reporting they're like there's a humanitarian crisis and i'm like 
because you no longer have a central bank, but reporters that that doesn't quite scintillate. And so that's not, you know, it's oh the Taliban or whatever. It's like if you don't have a central bank and you don't have money, and, and you're that, gonna get you're a, gonna famine. a famine. And 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 that raises a very important point that this this actually came out in the Afghanistan papers is that most of the aid money was stolen. Mm-hmm. So the money, the money that was meant to go to humanitarian relief uh, was essentially going to the pockets of warlords and was, you know, a very, you know, very small elite. Uh, and, and this, I think, is true in many uh, in many aid situations, but it was particularly true in Afghanistan. Uh, it just goes into the pockets of the warlords and never really makes it down to the man on the street, that, which is why Afghanistan uh, you know, wasn't is so susceptible to uh, uh, the Taliban. So we don't give away the plot of the book. If you have a framework for, and obviously these countries are different, the way a commodity exporter versus an importer versus all these, there's a huge diversity in terms of the the nuances of these countries. But if you were teaching a course on sort of how the emerging world works 101, what is the basic framework you would be imparting to students and how did that influence the construction of this book? A great resource for me uh, through my career, but also in writing the book, was is the work done by Global Witness and Transparency International. And Transparency does a an amazing job. They, they have for 30, more than 30 years, uh, maybe more, maybe 40 years. Oh, the guy who founded that lived down the street from me. I would love to meet him. I don't believe, I think, I believe it's, I I believe he's passed away, but I could, I could check. But the, uh, he was a guy, if I have the story right, that he worked for the World Bank for years making loans and then he retired. He was one of these anonymous bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. and was just so disgusted he's Dutch. I was to, and I knew other people were Dutch. The uh, he was so disgusted by this. That's what led to the creation of Transparency International. Transparency is genius. It is absolute genius. It's the, uh, and we can talk about Bellingcat too because it's it's a very similar model. Yeah. But transparency is uh, crowdsourcing of information about corruption. Yeah, uh, and they they analyze. Um, Every, every country and every country is ranked uh, in terms of easy doing business and outright bribery. And they've got, a, a, you know, 10 different uh, measures of, of corruption. And, uh, and then they rank the countries uh, from one to 191 or how, however many countries there are today. Um, but it's, um, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant process and brilliant piece of work. And it gives real insight into, at least as a, a starting place, uh, whether you've got a country that works, because if you have a country that is fundamentally corrupt, it just doesn't work. And the more corrupt it is, the, the less it works unless money is changing hands. Well, it's basically the, my, my perception of these things are not quite as much of the, you know, it, it, from the angle you had, is the way I describe it is they're medieval. Yep. Like in, in, in what is a typical middle age, you know, before all these notions of rule of law developed in Western Europe, how did it work? Well, there's a king and there's tithing. They take money, they give something back. There's tithing. If the king is bad, he gets murdered. And that's basically the structure. And this structure is replicated in many countries today in more sophisticated forms with, you know, 100 times the population. But that's basically what's going on. And then the other thing about rule of law is, is that 
you know, Germany happened. The rule of law could break down, and then you can switch into that system very quickly. Very quickly, and and Russia is a uh, is a great example of this, right? Because Russia yeah. using the the word, you know, the term tithing. I mean, Russia is a country, a nation that is tithed by one man. Yeah, and it, and, it, and different forms of it have existed for hundreds and hundreds of years, and all the big legal reforms that took place in the West never for reasons we can get into, but they never occurred in Russia. And so it looks modern. In other words, people wear excellent suits and they have fancy watches and they have a space station, stuff like that. But that's that's sort of, that's the surface level. The hardware is medieval. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the, the proclivity of the people is also, uh, is to be willing to accept that sort of a medieval structure. So yeah. it's it's uh, there's well a, they get in, stuck in self-reinforcing loops because the people who aren't are either killed or exiled and then it creates this you know they come to places here you know think about the people who founded you know Google why were they driven out of you know it was because of seeing that and the parents having the perspicacity to without getting into all the characters the twists and turns um, there is a question basically about the way wealth is a reality distortion machine. There's a question about the massive misallocation of the U.S. federal budget. Like if you were to think about it, a fund manager spending a ton on things with terrible returns and not enough on others. There is uh, a question I had thinking about your solutions to the book and you as a lawyer, like are we headed for a constitutional crisis in the United States having to do with the Senate and the rural-urban divide and, and the types of pressures? But if you could hit some of those things quickly, I would, I would love your thoughts. They're big questions. Which, which, uh, where do you want to start? Why don't you talk about the uh, corrupting influence of money, the reality distortion impact of money, and watching that on Wall Street and yourself growing up in what sounds like a middle class household, but really prized, I would say, curiosity and education. And then watching, and I saw the same thing too, what it is like to watch people become very wealthy and what it does to their thinking. Yeah. It's, um, so I grew up in a time when, uh, Nobody was nobody. Nobody was rich or seemed rich. People had more or less money, but uh, and I would say I was living in suburban New Jersey, so I wasn't living in New York City. I didn't, you know, I didn't see these extremes of wealth. But the, obviously, in the last, you know, forty years, uh, people have become a lot of people have become fabulously wealthy. Yes. Uh, and and so I started. One of the things I started thinking about because many of the characters in uh, and under money um, are very wealthy and yes. seek more and seek more wealth. Insatiable. Uh, ins completely insatiable. They, they, will, they will never have enough. So I started reading about uh, the impact that money has on the brain. And there are serious epigenetic uh, effects caused by money. Oh, say more. In, because you're, you're the first, it starts with, I think, um, it starts with a natural... Uh, thickening of your bubble. And tr actually, Charles Murray writes about this, the bubble. Yeah. And he has different measures like, did you own a pickup truck, a shotgun? You know, he, you know, you know he's, he's got these different things. And if you've never done these four things, you're, you know, you're so deeply inside your bubble that you may have no idea where you are. And the people that I've known uh, who, uh, and I think, look, this is true of all of us, to some extent, we all want to create a thicker bubble to insulate ourselves from privation, insulate our families from risk. Um, I was just talking at lunch today about a, uh, uh, 
a friend who uh, has a fatwa against her uh, and has mm -hmm. to travel with bodyguards. So we all want to protect ourselves and our loved ones. And I think the, the wealthier people become, the easier it is to insulate yourself from everything that goes on, you know, amongst the, uh, you know, other people. I, I bought a, a book, this is just incidental, but uh, it's called the El Morocco Album. And El Morocco was a famous nightclub mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, and the album is fascinating because it has photographs and captions. But the, the, um, the, the foreword is written by uh, someone named Lucius Beebe. Uh, and he talks about a club, you know, a, a, a nightclub in which the only people who got in were people who count. And he capitalized people who count. Um, and I think that that kind of epitomizes what happens when people, uh, as people become vastly wealthy, um, they separate themselves from everybody but each other. And they live in enclaves, they only talk to each other. And I think this, this is obviously something that's going on as a, you know, we have going on in our world and particularly in our country where people get to a, a point of, of bubblehood where they live totally in their bubble and they're un, unable, I think actually unable to pierce it and to touch someone in another bubble. Yeah. And, and of course, there, there are you know, important um, interests, notably the political class, that have an interest in making sure that um, the the uh, the people living in their bubbles never meet, and and making sure that those people think that they're under threat at all times, and only you know these politicians can protect them from that sort of uh, you know depredation. So, which you know obviously causes people with money to want to you know curry favor and influence with politicians in order to um, to protect themselves. So you have this, this um, very, very uh, negative feedback loop that involves vast amount a of money. Sort, a, a source of undermoney, effectively. This is how I think about undermoney, Paul. If, if you're looking at something in the world that doesn't seem to make sense to you, the answer is always undermoney. This goes back to what you said at the very beginning when you talked about uh, travel. And no matter where you go, if there's one thing people care about, it's money, right? Yeah. And, in, and if you can't see the money, it doesn't mean the money's not there. It just means it's under money. And what you don't see is all those relationships. Go back to the military example. So the military, a trillion dollars. So the congressional class have an interest in seeing uh, factories located in their districts yeah. and military bases in their districts. So you have this relationship between uh, the military and uh, industry and Congress. And by the way, when Eisenhower wrote about the military industrial complex, he originally called it the military industrial congressional complex, but he was, yeah, true story. He was, he was told to take out the word Congress from it. Yeah. Just call it the military industrial, but, but of course, military industrial complex doesn't work without Congress. Right. 
And it's and it's basically it's one of these disaggregated networks, a little bit like used car dealerships. It's like one of the reasons why why have they been immune from certain types of disruption? Well, because they're all over. They can pay congressional fees and they go in. And so, at least in the private sector, you get something like Carvana that comes and says, "No, we can do an end run around you completely." And the consumer can choose. And I think that they might go out of business. And with it, will end a form of under money if Carvana is. Mm-hmm. But with the military, it doesn't work that way. And the chaos it causes globally. And it's it's one of these things that, yes, people want to pursue wealth because of the, you know, makes them feel safe. And then the more the world becomes very stratified, the less safe you feel, unless you have a lot of money. So it's kind of a self-reinforcing loop that is difficult to break. And the military is another one of these odd where the people who are actually in it are sometimes embody the most noble values we can pursue, but the whole machine itself can be utterly corrupt. You said it perfectly. As individuals, um, I can't think of a, a better group of people yes. uh, than the people who are in the military, but they're caught up in a system. Yeah. And the system is fundamentally broken. Yes. And any questions for me? I, you don't have to ask them, but I allow all my guests to return fire, sort of as an element of courtesy. Do you? Um, it's it's. I don't mean this to be, um, you know, impossibly self-referential, but um, uh, Under Money is a. It's a book with. Um, I think all the characters are heroic, but none yeah. of them are heroes. How do yes. you think? How do you think about heroism? today in our society what makes are there uh, are there heroes what yes. makes people heroic do you have heroes i've thought a lot about that in the context of of, uh, of my first book uh, which you know about raising a thief mm-hmm. and i think that you know tolstoy had this thing that everybody thinks about changing the world but nobody thinks about changing themselves so i think that to basically the the to get things more right and restore these balances it begins with getting people more right internally in terms of them having the balance between work-life balance and how to be assertive and open-eyed and how to pursue their career, but be a good family person, blah, blah, blah. I think that once you've created a fundamental disruption and things get off balance, and you mentioned this, so if your character, you know, the main character, you know, has no friends, no ability to form relations, not the main, sorry, the main villain, uh, Vicar. Uh, has no ability to form these really, you know, his best friend is a, is a radio, uh, which is you know, so, so awful. And certainly I met a number of people in my professional life who have an unbelievable ability to make money and not an ability to, to form relationships. But in my mind, the hero is the person who breaks a cycle of dysfunction. So typically, really pernicious forms of dysfunction, like we were talking about in Russia, repeat through generations. And a lot of times, the person who does something terrible to their kids, if you look back, somebody did something terrible to them. And so in my mind, the heroes are people who recognize that something dysfunctional has happened to them, recognize that, look at themselves, and recognize their own dysfunctional habits, and have the wherewithal to fire break that enough that it doesn't impact their own kids. And that then reverses that momentum that has been set up. And I see that people do it. Some people try to do it institutionally. Some people try to do it in their own lives. And it is heroic because it's unbelievably difficult to break that 
once you've had that type of fundamental disruption. And then I think it replicates like to the degree that you could do that in your own life and then change that for your children, then that sets up the odds that their children, blah, 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 it'll go around. And that's how you begin to stem these things. And I think it's tribal. And I actually think stepping back, there's another person we're going to have on the podcast that Dave and I influenced recently. Like what is the point of story, broadly speaking? Another thing you could debate. I think that at its base level, the point of story is to tell stories that the tribe uses to save itself. And so I think taking the time to do what you've done and you know what I'm trying to do, and the first book, the second book is almost done, um, is that. It's that thing to try to distill those stories in a way that guides people back on course. And I think you're right that if you did a textbook on how screwed up emerging markets are, the readership would be like 13 very enthusiastic people. This thing is a way of sort of getting into their consciousness and opening that up a little bit. And I hope it works. And I think it's I think it's harder to do in a corrupt society. Like if you grow up and your parents, you know, so many people I knew in Russia, uh, you know, bribe taking was part of the culture, even though a small part of them recognized that it probably wasn't a good thing. But then you get into these survival things, you know, a physician that's taking bribes. They don't like taking bribes, but on the other hand, they can only do so many of this type of surgery. And by the way, their kid needs, you know, some special help. And you you look at so you and the, the two Biggest and best and worst examples of this are um, Russia, of course, and China. Yeah, those are obviously two places that I dealt with a lot of firsthand. And there's so many, it's so tragic to me, like if I take the Russia example, so, so tragic. The productivity, the potential productivity of Russia, if they reverse the self-reinforcing loop of the talented people getting scared and leafing, and they actually stayed there and you tapped the productivity and you had transparent capital markets and rule of law, I, you could get an unbelievable boom there that would be good for the world and good for them and everything. And that's cut off because they're locked into a system that prevents it. Yep. Anyways, this was the longest recording we've ever done, which is testimony to what an interesting conversation is. <laughs> normally, normally like an hour and 10, it's like both me and the guest are done. But this is a great talk. It was really, really fun. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for your for the therapy. Uh, <laughs> a lot of these things I've never talked about. Um, I haven't thought about well, it in a long good. time. It's very good. Anyways, we'll be in touch. Great. Great. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack and become a paid subscriber. That helps support the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.